Okay, this is going to be a failed bit. I can't remember <laughs> which which button you're supposed to push first. I'm still stuck on some stupid ad for dental implants that popped up. You're on foodie.net? Yep. So you got to... Oh, because it's old HTML. I see why. I see why. They don't even support that on browsers anymore, Eric. They don't even support well, that click stuff. here to... <laughs> it works on my computer. <laughs> click here to have the HTML version. HTML5. You want that? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to open it on my computer to make it... You are a QWOP. Our small nation's sole representative at the Olympic Games. Use the KWOP keys to move your legs. Run 100 meters. Oh, it's not about whether you win or lose. <laughs> right. So we're getting a live look at Josh playing a game from my high school time. Wow, this looks pretty advanced. Oh, shit. I fell back down. I fell back. <laughs> and my knees went backwards. Yeah, so the the different keys control, like the KW, oh, oh, QW, oh, oh. control yeah. your one leg. OP, control but, the other okay, leg. Okay, so one is your knee joint and the other is your ankle joint. It's it's more like the extension and then retraction of your leg. <laughs> I got 0.7 meters and I face planted. All right, one more try. All right, I'm... Oh, shit. Oh, I high-kicked myself and did a backflip. <laughs> How far did you get? I got negative 0.7 meters that time. I don't All know right. what leg I'm... Whoa, I did the splits. I don't know what leg I'm supposed to move first. Oh, I did negative 1.8. Okay. I kind of move forward. Oh, Trey's oh, gonna... Oh, 1.4 face plant. All right. Trey's gonna love this, um, <laughs> but I doubt he listens. One more try. 1.1. 1. 1. All right. Oh, that was terrible. Why do you relate... Why do your knees bend backwards? That's what I... <laughs> see, that's what makes this whole thing unstable. If If the knees just bent correctly, then you wouldn't have a problem, really. Here's Josh complaining about the anatomics of video games again. Uh, have you ever won? Did you? Ever, how far did you ever get in your life? Oh, boy. You know, I would like to say that I did get at least up to 80 at some point. But, I mean, this is one of those games that it would take you... You would do it for, like, 25 minutes. Because you're just, like... <laughs> you would find a way to get in the splits... It's, and then just kind of inch along. Yeah, inch along down the ground. So, yeah. Now a calf muscle. Oh, no, no. <laughs> That'll be ours. Nope. Okay. I can't do it. I can't I can't make it past 1.7 meters. That's my best. Best. Personal best. How do you think that was going to go with the rest of the world? <laughs> uh, so what was a uh, high school time kill for me yeah uh video game wise was always uh was always goldeneye in high school goldeneye you can't really sneak that into a school though. final fantasy 7 no we didn't like in school gaming back then it was when you we first got like the first uh wolfenstein and doom emulator design kit and so mm. in like uh, bcis we would uh work on making our own doom levels and um 
this one kid I knew made an exact replica doom level of our high school. Like he got the exact floor plan of the high school and made it a doom level. And uh, so that's probably the thing that we played most if we played games at school was messing around on that. And, but this was before 1999, so he didn't get sent off to a school. Yeah, this was before. We were all wearing trench coats, just having a good time. You know, <laughs> no one was doing anything bad yet. <laughs> all the trench coat kids were cool because they were all just in debate. <laughs> <laughs> wow, what a time. Um, yeah, I see. To tell you how far advanced it was, by the time that I was in high school... We had a multiplayer online Halo emulator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure the you guys were playing like Counter Strike, you know, <laughs> on, on your on your library computers with each other in like LAN parties, blowing off study yeah, hall. Yeah, yeah, we definitely. Uh, I mean, that was great because we had Wi-Fi too, um, in the school. Or I guess it was more like they would bring a cart around, and that cart would have the the um, internet port or whatever. I don't think we had Wi-Fi. I don't think Wi-Fi was even a thing when I was in high school. When was Wi-Fi? You know, in Spanish, it's called Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi. That's, mm-hmm. It's more phonetically correct. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, learned that in the Dominican Republic. What's never ending to find the beginning that came before everything like kids with Dakotas Discover the wonder In the ordinary We didn't write the rules We just ride the tone This starts a, a a big uh, a big series for us that I've been really excited about. Have you yeah, been excited you, about it? <laughs> yeah, I was excited about the texts I was getting from you. You're <laughs> losing your mind. Um, so we uh, we I wanted to cover dinosaurs, but I thought you know maybe like one episode on dinosaurs is probably not enough. And I think there's like lots of misconceptions about dinosaurs because a lot of us got really into them when we were kids. And so we like maybe, you know, uh, digested a bunch of science from like the late 90s. And that's the last time we really thought about any of the science surrounding dinosaurs. And uh, a lot's happened in 30 years (laughs) as as far as what we know about dinosaurs goes. Um, And... Uh, I, there's just, I thought breaking it down into sort of the epics, the, the different periods of geologic time at which the dinosaurs reigned really would be the best way to do it. Cause you really, this is really a story about evolution, uh, more than necessarily just a story about how cool dinosaurs are. Um, and so you've got, uh, you've got the Triassic period, 
the famous Jurassic period and then the Cretaceous period. And those are the three time, the three periods of time where dinosaurs lived on Earth. And throughout that time, all three of those times are bookended by huge extinction events. But there's also large extinction events during the time when dinosaurs are on the Earth and they don't get wiped out. Um, so I think the most fascinating thing about this is how when a ton of biodiversity has already happened on the planet and you've had like life thriving on the planet for almost half a billion years, you have every evolutionary niche filled. Like Mm -hmm. so many different types of creatures. You've got stuff crawling out of the ocean, learning how to breathe oxygen on land. You've got plants now on land. You've got all of these... Uh, different looking type of lizards and proto mammals and amphibians and all this crazy stuff that this is all before dinosaurs. Every evolutionary niche is filled in the late Permian. And so really there's like no room for dinosaurs. There's not a space where dinosaurs could evolve to become the apex predator or the largest herbivore or the dominant species on the planet. There's there's no possible way or evolu- for evolution to create a channel for them to become the dominant species. Except if a huge cataclysmic event happens and wipes out like <laughs> 96% of all the living things on the planet, then there's a whole lot more opportunity for niches to be filled by the few very sparse organisms that survive this massive extinction event, which is the largest extinction event ever experienced on planet Earth. It's bigger than the one we'll talk about at the end of this series uh, when the asteroid hits during the late Cretaceous. It's bigger than uh, the one that happens at the beginning of the Jurassic period. Uh, this is it's it's bigger than any of the ice ages. This is the hu- largest extinction event that's ever happened in the history of the planet no matter how you want to measure it whether you're just going by the number of organisms that go extinct if you want to talk about the diversity of organisms that go extinct if you want to talk about the sheer just size or or the mass of the organisms that go extinct from super large to very microscopic small um it is the biggest dying event that has ever been recorded and we have like the actual fossil record and it's very stark and very evident when you look at the geologic layers of time where you have all of this diversity of life and then all of a sudden there is a boundary and nothing, almost nothing survives in the fossil record above that boundary. Yeah, the, the I'm trying to think of where to start. The thing that's kind of cool, like studying those layers, the strata of Earth is fairly new. It's like, I think it started in like the 1700s or something, Mm -hmm. but they originally started noticing that there's these different layers. And I think it was a French guy. He proposed that the rock at the bottom is the older rock. And then the stuff at the top is the newer rock. Uh, which always kind of tripped me up a little bit because like, you know, skin grows from the bottom, but 
what have you. <laughs> uh, so if rock, if rock was all just like a organic thing that the earth was just growing, you know, from the bottom up. <laughs> right. Yeah. And in ways, and I guess the, that does work if you're talking about volcanoes. See, so it, it is a little confusing. Um, so they started studying this, but then realized, well, we can't compare layers across the globe because there's different types of rock that appears and there's different, you know, strata and it looks strange and all this kind of stuff. Like if you're comparing the Alps to, uh, you know, say, I don't know, South America or something, yeah. the, the mountains are going to be totally different the, the way that they're constructed. And so it's hard to compare. But then they started noticing that the now I'm going to get the names wrong because I didn't actually write notes on this video. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they started noticing like uh, fossils only appeared. I think it was like ammonites, maybe only appeared at a certain level. And then they always knew that another type of fossil appeared above that. And then another type of fossil appeared above that. So by understanding that there's these different layers and then recognizing this pattern, they could then begin to compare uh, eras and... Uh, Let the dogs bark, huh? <laughs> can you hear that? Yeah, I can hear that. I can hear those crazy proto-mammals going off. <laughs> oh, man. This is, this is good. Um, so they began comparing the different layers to each other and started then segmenting them, which is when you think about it, like as I think we've described in a lot of science, it makes so much sense to us now, but somebody had to come up with the idea right, right. that there's these different points in time. And when you're talking about extinction events, there was no concept of extinction events before no. it was proposed. They were like, well, yeah, some things go extinct, but it takes a long, gradual time. And to think that something like humans could cause extinctions, that's ridiculous. Well, and you have all of the preloaded non-scientific notions that exist before humans start doing scientific stuff. <laughs> so a lot of all of the superstition and the religion and stories from the Bible and stories from the Norse peoples of giants and all, all of this stuff really seeps into the intuition of these early paleontologists. Like you have, obviously they're finding like giant bones as early as like the 1600s, like there's records of them finding giant bones of what we, what we understand now are like dinosaurs. Um, but there's no like animal to compare to that has bones like that that exist when they're finding them in the 16 and 1700s. So the most logical intuitive thing for them to decipher is that oh, these are probably human bones from giants that were referenced in the Bible, or these are, uh, these are you know, giants that were encountered by the Vikings, you know, that are part of their lore, that, that we're, we're just now finding that these, are, these things really existed. Because that's, uh, mm. that's the only sort of human story, human history, human mythology that has been ingrained in all 
people at that time. There is no like skeptical scientific theory that you're you're trying to test things against. <laughs> you're just like, oh yeah, this is a confirmation of the mysticism that I've I've been taught since I was a child. Right. So it's it's insane looking at these different layers too, because even once we get to like the Permian Triassic extinction event, that's insane. But knowing that extinction is considered just a normal plot of life is also wild. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, the numbers are always, they sound exaggerated, but they suspect that 99.999% of all species that have ever existed are extinct. Yeah. And when you talk about like speciation, that just means that there's, that they can, it's something that can interbreed and their offspring can also reproduce. Um, you have things like a, you know, like a mule. A mule is a cross between a donkey and a horse. Those are two different species, but then the mule is sterile. Yeah. Um, I think it has like an odd number of chromosomes or something. So it can't reproduce well. Like it's a dead odd number end. of like yeah, yeah, something <laughs> evolutionary dead exactly. end. And so when you're also talking about species, that means that they they don't necessarily breed with other species. So you're talking about a pretty genetically niched animal mm -hmm. at that point or plant or whatever we're talking about during this time. So to say that, you know, only 0.001% of all species currently exists is such an insane number. But then knowing that all of these things go through these waves totally makes sense because it's you're as you're saying you have like all of these niches filled at some point but then uh the natural selection pressure of competition either you know they say like natural selection drives evolution or whatever it obviously is not making a conscious decision there's right. not a group meeting of there's no like oh say, these these things were designed with a better purpose than these other things so we'll choose mm -hmm. them <laughs> yeah <laughs> and there's not something outside of that that's right. driving any of it or deciding these things but the pressures causes there's only going to be a new species when there's this much competition it's this tight each niche is filled if something is that much more advantageous um or you get something where there's a mass die-off. Like, yeah, you you almost clean the slate almost entirely. There's still a little bit of the slate left unclean, but it's so cleaned mm -hmm. off that like everything has an opportunity to try a new... We get to try a new environment. We get to try a new habitat. We get to try to fill this thing that is no longer being filled. And... The cool thing about it is that it really sh the cool thing about this whole story is that it shows you one there is no purpose to evolution like we're going to talk about dinosaurs and feathers and if you look at it back if you look at evolution backwards you see oh look there's birds and they fly so obviously feathers have something to do with flight so evolution was evolving to fly 
Like that was you 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 make that sort of assumption when you work it backwards, but that's not how this happened at all. Like there's creatures living for 200 million years with feathers and they don't fly. (laughs) They evolved feathers not to fly. That wasn't the intention of evolving feathers. Flight is a byproduct of filling a niche after feathers have developed and they elongate and they become something more than just an insulating system. And then you can use those appendages on your body to try to take to the air but the evolutionary advancement of feathers has nothing to do with the purpose of flight yeah the so the the thing that was insane to me that because i i to be honest was not really into dinosaurs as a kid um you were too young for it. You didn't. You were too I, young when the whole Jurassic Park craze happened. Yeah. So you yeah, missed, yeah. You missed mean, the whole fever dream. <laughs> I definitely saw it and was scared, and uh, but I did love the video game, the the uh, arcade game where yeah, you sat yeah. in the car. Um. So that was great, but the the weird way that evolution worked is before this extinction event throughout the Carboniferous period and then the Permian, you have, well, the Carboniferous period, which is, that's like a long, long time ago. Yeah. Very humid, high oxygen. That's when you get the giant bugs and everything. Oh, yeah. Um, like the uh, the spiders are bigger than dogs. The dragonflies are like two meters long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like they are the dominant uh, land species, the uh, uh, arachnids and and the dragonflies, like they're the ones that are picking up these little proto lizard, proto crocodilians up off the the off of the floor and eating them. It's not the uh, amphibians and proto lizards that are like eating the bugs. It's the other way around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but currently, it's not a revenge story. It's just how it works. Right. Uh, so you start to have tetrapods four-legged things um, that are laying their eggs in water. And during the Carboniferous period, you have amniotes that begin laying their eggs on land in shells. And the shell originally is just to keep the water around the egg. It's not Mm -hmm. meant as like a protective thing. That will evolve later on to be a little bit harder to get at and all that kind of stuff. But the amniotes is such a huge split during this time. It also splits into the synapsids and the reptiles. And the synapsids are the ones that include mammals and all the animals that are not reptiles. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a grab bag at that point. Um, but that's an important split because once you get into the Permian period, once Pangea forms and there's like a mass die off of all of these forests on the inland area. Uh, it's like starts turning into a desert yeah. in the central most parts. The amniotes thrive because they can live outside of water. But the the proto mammals, the synapsids, start to rule everything. And if you look at the images of these proto mammals, it's it's they're dinosaur like yeah. i mean the names of them too they're all like blah 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 sore right right which right it's very confusing because <laughs> we have to hold on to the old the the one english guy who dug up a thing and was like oh this is a lizard 
So we got to hold right. on to sores for everything. We're just going to call everything a sores. <laughs> but if you look at modern day, like if you looked at a rhino compared to a dinosaur, it you, it's hard to be like, oh, I can see how these two things are different. So, it's, yeah. you know, the structures are very similar. But what's interesting as you as we're talking about niches and everything they rule the land and are so dominant and fill all of the niches pretty much you have some reptiles that do it but a lot of reptiles are like really small mm-hmm. that uh, are going to go on then you have this extinction event and that just wipes out almost all of the proto mammals except a little little cartoolies you know a little <laughs> like the, <laughs> the little uh, <laughs> so so the extinction event is insane right yeah it's because it's the not great dying so and in, interestingly enough like scientists have discovered learned more about this extinction event the Permian Triassic boundary extinction event, the Great Dying, they knew more about the extinction event 65 million years ago that ended the dinosaurs from a space rock hitting the planet. They knew more about that than they knew about the Permian extinction event. And so there were a lot of, once there was like the idea that, oh, there must have been a giant rock from space and we can now see that there is a huge hole that is actually still there that punctured through the entire Earth's surface crust and such that that hole now sits right around the right around the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. So we can see that this huge thing happened. Um, and we know that that happened 65 and a half million years ago. So that lines up with what we see in the fossil record as far as this extinction. That was like a singular event, like a moment in time blitz the blitz the planet and over a very short time scale every lots of things died off when we're talking about the permian triassic boundary extinction this was not a flash event this was the event where you have all of the continents are all in one giant landmass on one side of the planet and like eric mentioned a second ago the the there's a lot of disadvantages to having all of the landmass being just one continent. One is that the interior of the continent quickly becomes an arid desert where nothing can grow or live because you don't have you don't have lots of coastline. You don't have lots of rivers running through this thing. You don't have any freshwater places that is pooling up, and you don't have a lot of uh, river deltas and sources for water to reach different parts of the land. But two, you also have a huge problem along the coastlines of this giant supercontinent because instead of having a lot of multiple continents where you have the landmass split up and you have lots of coastline around all of those smaller continents, when you have everything as just one big continent, you've reduced the coastline dramatically. And when you have lots of creatures that are living in the shallows of the coastline and they're on the verge of like being half water, half on land, salamanders, amphibians, these types of habitats, those are disappearing. And you've got a general problem of 
the ocean life that really relies on these shallow coastal lands where a lot of the diversity of ocean life exists has been reduced. And so because there's less of a playing field to compete, then basically species are taking each other out. Um, so you, you're already set up with a not great, well-balanced natural habitat. And when you have all of the landmass of all the plate tectonics pushing everything into one spot, eventually there's going to be a point at which it can't stay clustered together anymore and it starts to explode from the inside out. And you start this incredibly long volcanic period that lasts close to a million years of constant volcanic eruptions. And it, it happens in what is now Siberia, but you're talking about not mountains, mountainous volcanoes that explode. The entire surface of that portion of the continent that is about the size of the United States of America is all one giant burning lake of bubbling lava that is excreting tons of noxious gas into the atmosphere. And, you know, we're talking about sulfur dioxide and methane and carbon dioxide. But, like, when you emit that much sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere constantly over a million years, everything that falls back to Earth when it's mixed with water in the atmosphere is acid rain. So... <laughs> You already have the problem of you. it's incredibly dry, arid climate, tough to have a lot of diversity in that. Ever, all the life forms, even though they're abundant, are already struggling. Then you enter in this climate disaster. One, it starts to, before, you know, the methane and everything starts to dominate the atmosphere, just the volcanic eruptions and the ash are causing problems. Like the big um, existing sort of, uh, amphibians, they, like there's these amphibians that are the time they're like the size of buffalo, <laughs> that are just like <laughs> they're roaming. Massive. They're huge, and they all die off pretty quickly just from the ash because the ash gets in their lungs and they suffocate. And that happens to a lot of the larger creatures that are on the planet. But then you have the acid rain, which destroys like the habitats of the plants and the fauna and everything, which is the food source for a lot of these things. Um, and when that happens, you've already experienced like a five degree centigrade increase just from the beginning of the volcanic interaction. But then when all of the toxic gases spread throughout the earth um, and take up the atmosphere, it raises it another six degrees. So now you're at 11 degrees increase where you're talking like an average temperature before was in the low 90s and now you're like in the up in the upper hundreds uh so it's not very sustainable but the the bigger thing that happens is just from the increase in temperature the acid rain the noxious gases all of that stuff you lose most of all the land animals and land creatures and land plants from that ocean's been hanging on you know for a little bit but it can't it can't last very much longer in this type of environment as well. As the temperature heats up, more water evaporates. But what happens is that it's not that the oceans dry up, it's that they lose their oxygen. They become stagnant water 
There's no more flowing water in the ocean. It's just still and it's hot and there's no oxygen. So the only thing that really lives in the ocean anymore at this time are certain creatures that can get really deep and still find some, you know, little niches of oxygen release and things like that. And then these certain types of algae that feed off of carbon dioxide and sulfur and methane and don't need oxygen in the water. So the ocean actually turns pink because it's so full of all these algae that don't use oxygen. Um, and the like the other big thing that happens is as the oceans heat up, um, there are all these methane deposits that are frozen on the bottom of the ocean. And this is true today. This is like a big concern with modern day climate change. And we talked about this a little bit in the Oceans podcast. So we know that carbon dioxide is a really bad greenhouse gas. And that's like what has been emitted the majority from these volcanic eruptions. And that's what's increased the temperature of the planet. But it's increased it enough now that there's these frozen methane deposits that are on the very bottom of the ocean. These frozen methane deposits start to thaw out. And when they thaw out, the methane is then bubbles up to the surface and releases out of the ocean and into the atmosphere. Methane is 20 times more harmful of a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. So when that big load of all the frozen methane that was sitting on the bottom of the ocean floor gets released, that turns into the cataclysmic event that it's just runaway. We're not going to come back from this. It's We're talking now millions of years for the earth to heal itself and come back and even get just surface plants and stuff like that back. We've basically gone back to a hellish landscape on the planet, very similar to 500 million years before this, where there's almost no life. There's no probably complex life. It's gone back to very, very simple, very humble beginnings and very uh, (laughs) inhospitable to anything. Yeah. And the thing that I found really interesting right off the bat with this extinction event is it's the one that finally killed off the trilobites, yeah, <laughs> which had survived two previous mass extinction events. Um, so it is the one that's big enough that killed something that has not only been around f- since 500 million years ago, it survived the extinction event 445 million years ago, the sea crawling larvae uh survived that event then it survived the one 370 million years ago and then uh which also like took place over a massive time scale like possibly it's estimated that it could have been 500,000 years to 25 million years long Mm -hmm. um but it it finally took them out with this one and the wild thing that i guess i hadn't really considered because you don't you don't like i don't know whenever i hear extinction event i don't i just hear things die off and then whenever you're like well a species goes extinct during one of these events you're thinking okay well there was something specific to that species it was so specialized in whatever area yeah um it couldn't adapt to like just a slight change in the environment and so it died (laughs) right like panda bears (laughs) with the permian triassic extinction you had um 
57% of biological families go extinct. Yeah. And a family is like, that's humans, chimps, gorillas are all in the same family. That's wolves and raccoons are in the same family. Yeah. Um, so something that is, that means that this extinction event was so, it was not a niche sort of environment. It wasn't just the oceans, even though they have a ton of life turning acidic and becoming stagnant. It was that that affects the whole food chain that was in the ocean and it affects the land so significantly that it you it doesn't matter how specifically you're evolved, your likelihood of surviving and anything that is even closely related to you surviving genetically is like just totally wiped out. Yeah. It's a coin flip. And we're we're so lucky that like there's this one tiny like the size of three inches like proto mammal from the Permian Triassic period that does yeah. survive this extinction. He's like it looks like a mole with like a like a dog snout that doesn't but it's like veiny. I don't it it does it looks like something that would come out of, you know, like uh like special effects from Hollywood or something, you know. Uh yeah. doesn't look like it should be an actual living thing that God created. But that that little thing that survived by living in burrows, and they have the um, fossilized evidence of the burrows where yeah. these things lived underground during the extinction event. That thing becomes us. <laughs> and it's just that thing. If that one little fucking mole proto-mammal doesn't survive the extinction event, we don't ever, like, not just us, but like pretty much no mammals it just doesn't happen like it we just that one little holdover is the thing that like spawns the rest of the mammalian family tree after this yeah and all of the evolution that happened before this too was fascinating to me that like the i mean we're talking like synapsids and then therapsids and everything but the just the the evolution that happened before this where you have differentiation of teeth. Mm -hmm. So you have, you know, the the tooth-bearing uh, bones in the mammals. Um, you just have like a single lower jaw that contains all of those. You have spec specification, I guess, of teeth. You get like the canines and the incisors and everything for different aspects of it compared to like, you know, an alligator's mouth is just all all the, the same, same type tooth. of tooth yeah um then you get the vertebrae in the neck especially that are saddle shaped so you have a wider range of motion to it um but the burrowing aspect was insane to me i didn't know this that today uh half of all mammals burrow so this is like a holdover uh you know trait or whatever from this one thing that survived and it wasn't just one there were like i guess a few different kind of species i think yeah of this type but it was it was one type of animal um which you know then went on to use burrowing to its benefit as reptiles started to <laughs> fill all of the niches that the mammals once held yeah, that's that's the interesting thing. So 
now we're now we can really talk about the dawn of the dinosaurs because you have cleaned the slate and you said okay we've got these handful of organisms that now come out into this new early triassic world where the plants are back and the bugs are teeny tiny and the and you can go anywhere you want like you're probably not going to run into a predator for a while <laughs> you know there's not like this huge <laughs> yeah. already filled environment of predator and prey and we all know where we stand on this list it's sort of a Hey, maybe there's going to be like new types of predators, and maybe maybe the things that were predators before don't get to be predators anymore. And this is where we get like the the most popular one that I think people would know is uh, Coelophysis, the little bitty dinosaur. Because they, I think they actually had these in one of the Jurassic, maybe it was Jurassic Park too. But they're like the little tiny dinosaurs. They're like the size of they go up to like your knee. And they're really long, skinny necks. They basically look like chickens without feathers, with a long neck and a and a little lizard head instead of a beak. Um, but they are sort of the they they're the most robust fossil evidence of the earliest dinosaurs that we have from the early to mid Triassic period, sort of the dawn of the dinosaurs, and. Part of the reason why we have very uh, robust fossil evidence of them is that there's clear evidence that they survived in packs. They worked together in large groups because many of the times when their fossils are found, they're found where there's lots of them all together. You know, they were all by a riverbank that got hit by a flash flood. And so, you know, 30 of them all died in a cluster. And we see the fossil evidence of them all tangled together in a big mass. Um, so we know, you know, they're, they probably hunted in packs. But that made, th they figured out an advantageous niche to almost become an apex predator, even being that size, because they were able to move quickly in packs. And this is really where we can talk about the, what defines a dinosaur from like a lizard or an amphibian or a turtle or the other things that were alive at that time. Um, when I took my paleontology class in college, like this was the big thing that everyone talked about because we had to basically memorize the bones and how the skeletons of dinosaurs laid out. It really comes down to their hips. And basically the hips of a dinosaur that make it different than a lizard are, are situated such that the, the legs, the back legs of the of the animal line up underneath the animal and they have a large ball and socket joint in that hip. Um, and that allows them to have their feet up underneath them so that they can one stand upright if they need to, but two, they're much quicker um, than a lizard who has its legs like off branched off to the side and they're relying on the hip joint to be the structural thing that holds it up. Similar to like when we talked about crucifixion on the Shroud of Turin thing, like the way <laughs> just like crucifixion, just like crucifixion. But the the way crucifixion works is like you can't breathe very long when your arms are stretched out to your side and you're trying to hold up your weight with your shoulder joints. Like your lungs can't, 
you can't take in as much air. And if you're relying on those joints to be the structural member that holds you together, you get tired really fast. And this was the evolutionary problem or the evolutionary bad design, quote unquote, from a lizard perspective. Because their limbs are off to the side of their body, they're relying on their hips and shoulders to hold their weight up those joints instead of them being underneath their body and using the actual bones to hold themselves up. So like a crocodile, it can move, but it can't move very fast for very long. It can, you know, shimmy and it can like crawl pretty quickly. Or you've seen even like um, small lizards like geckos and stuff, they can move pretty quick, but they can't do that for very long because they cannot fill their lungs with air if they're running. But a dinosaur with its hips situated the way that they are and the legs underneath it so that it can run, one, much faster, much more agile, but two, can run forever because it's not going to impact its lung capacity. It has way more stamina. So it's sort of a thing where the apex predators just before the extinction event were these giant lizard saber tooth things that are like a cross between a crocodile and a wolf and though they move around with their big lumbering legs kind of like komodo dragons and they're like the uh the apex predator but after the event you get these tiny little dinosaurs but they're all carnivores and they work together and they're incredibly fast and that is the before they become these giant terrible Tyrannosaurus Rex in the late Jurassic period that is dominating the world, they're actually able to dominate an evolutionary niche specifically by being small and agile. Yeah, the size comparison is something that's hard to imagine because whenever you think of dinosaurs, you immediately think of the big ones. Mm -hmm. So it is always weird to remember that there's (laughs) as many big ones as there were there were probably you know many times that of tiny ones and you can't find all of those bones all the time tinier means it's harder <laughs> to find oh yeah oh yeah like a, a the giant fossils of yeah a giant bone of a of a theropod you know like of a brachiosaur or something like that is going to be preserved and fossilized much easier and over a long period of time than the tiny little hollow bird bones of a coelophysis. Those are probably mm-hmm. going to degrade before they can be uh, fossilized. Yeah. And one of the evolutionary things that also came into play with the ability of dinosaurs to evolve so well, um, archosaurs, which are the ancestors of dinosaurs and crocodilians, they developed this i mean it's insane but they have a unidirectional respiratory system so where they breathe in they don't breathe out it goes in one direction the whole way and through Um, the nose out through the mouth or the other way around maybe and maybe i can't i don't know which which it is um didn't look into it too much but they have like different they have like an a uh, front like air sac and then lungs and then a yeah, like, posterior yeah, yeah, air yeah. sac and it just rotate like so you have air ready to go into your lungs like before you're even breathing it in 
it's almost like a heart, you know, like mm. pumping air through you. So that not only helps them, you know, you, okay, so there's a few things. One, it helped them in the low oxygen environment of the great dying um, to survive through that. But then it also lends credence to a higher metabolism because you can get oxygen to your muscles so much better. And that in conjunction with no competition and then the adaptive radiation of filling niches all over the place means that you're going to, you know, it doesn't happen immediately. The recovery from the extinction takes quite a while, but that means you're going to get like very fierce things, you know? Right. Like in comparison to what currently exists, like the little cartouli, you know, it's, yeah. the, <laughs> it's going to be something that can, because of its metabolism, maintain massive muscles so that it can move a huge body. Yeah, those uh, those think, early ones are look look nuts. Look like uh crocodiles on steroids. And there's some that were like uh like 40, 50 feet long and stuff and just walked around on all fours and it, and those like had no natural predators at the at that beginning of the Triassic. Yeah. The I mean, you have like the weird ones too where like the neck is six meters long like the neck is as long as the body and tail combined mm-hmm. we get we yeah uh, we, so weird and yeah you get the like some of the first ones actually are the uh plesiosaurs in the ocean and they have those incredibly long necks but they're swimming dinosaurs with these long necks <laughs> which everyone yeah. thought was like the loch ness monster but yeah that those are from like the beginning of the triassic so and that that's the other interesting thing is you have um you have a retur- a reversal of evolution right after the great dying you have these uh creatures that were sort of uh proto crocodilian that had they didn't really have legs they were like had fins but they had big uh big crocodile mouths but they kind of behave like sea lions. They would like jump out onto the surface and grab anything that was like trying to take a drink of water. Um, those things during the extinction event returned to the water. They had been on their way to like becoming these land creatures, but they go back. They go back to the water where they came from. And by the end of the extinction event, there is now in the fossil record the evolution of those creatures into what looks like dolphins with these long instead of the snouts being like a dolphin snout it looks like a snout with crocodile teeth all in it they're not related to dolphins in any way they're not related to sharks in any way but they have the exact same body type and this is just another thing about how convergent evolution works and when a planet is set up with a certain type of environment even if things aren't related at all in, in an evolutionary sense, they will find similar body shapes, body types, and similar methods to take advantage of the niches that the environment has provided for them. So you have this 
apex predator of the ocean that looks like a dolphin with a big row of crocodile teeth. That's actually a lizard that had been living on land that returned to the ocean to become a, a water creature again. And so it like went backwards from out of the ocean back in to try to survive the extinction event. And that is dominating the oceans until these plesiosaurs show up and just wipe them out. Like no, nothing is the predator of these giant crocodile dolphin looking things until the plesiosaurs show up and then they just take them all out yeah the the that's one thing that i kind of wonder that's probably why i didn't get into dinosaurs very much because it was never presented as a story of evolution yeah you know it's it's always presented as like look how crazy things used to be (laughs) (laughs) um but the you know like it's sort of a reversal of evolution, but it's also, it just goes to show you that they weren't too specified in their body type yet. Yeah. They were, they were sort of like the raccoons of the era where they could do both. They could get things on land sort of, and then they could also swim well. And that it, that's like the story that keeps coming up throughout all of these things. It's, it's like you get these dinosaurs or mammals or plants that are very specialized and that's the thing that that screws them up because you can't immediately go back to a more simplified generalized form Mm -hmm. um so it's i don't know it's it's very interesting too that there was like this major split around 230 million years ago i don't know what the driving force of it was really but the split between the like long-necked dinosaurs and then the bipedal yeah like mostly carnivorous dinosaurs i i this it's an interesting thing because i think part of it has to do with the need for ease of like taxonomy when you they they first started trying to oh, figure okay. a bunch of stuff out they're like okay these are what dinosaurs are and then a bunch of people went back and we're like, yeah, we have a better, now we have lots more, you know, specimens. We can be more specific about and more rigorous about this. And then other people were like, yeah, but you don't want to make it so that all the ceratopsians are no longer considered dinosaurs, do you? And then they're like, no, I guess we can still call those dinosaurs. <laughs> so, so then you have the sauropods and the theropods and we still call them all dinosaurs even though we can distinctly say now we say dinosaurs are either have one of these two type of hip bone structures (laughs) Hmm. and one will lead you to be a bipedal dinosaur and one will lead you to be a quadrupedal dinosaur and in some instances, the ones with the bipedal hip also walked around on all fours, but they could also walk around on two if they needed to or whatever, if they wanted to. So the talking bears. Yeah. So I think, I think there is room that if this was like, uh, if you just walked to a group of scientists and were like, no one knows what any of these bones are, but we found 900 different specimens of this one and 4,000 different specimens of this. And so here, we're just going to dump them out all on the table and you guys figure out the taxonomy. Then there would probably be a much more precise, like working your way through about how all of these things are related to each other or not related. But because it happens piecemeal like over time you uh 
you kind of get stuff grandfathered in because this is the way everyone understands it. So we'll just call these also dinosaurs to for sake of not confusing everyone every 10 years and we discover something else and change it. Yeah. Do you have a top dinosaur from this era? Um, period. Sorry. This period. Um, like I really like Coelophysis. Um, the other ones that are cool. Let's see what were my list here. Um, the, uh, the, uh, Aoraptor, that's like the oldest one. And the cool thing about the Aoraptor is that its layout is the precursor of... It, it is the skeleton and precursor of what all the future bipedal dinosaurs would be. Like, there's not much variation from the way that its hips, joints, and its fused vertebrae in its spine so that it could stand upright. And there is stuff, other things too, that are very specific to dinosaurs, like um, the the representation of their forearm to their upper arm, the the sort of ratio between those distances um, is pretty common, and um, also with their uh, with uh, certain joints that are in their ankles that are different than pretty much all of the creatures that allowed them to you know kind of walk on their toes and really run very fast and have a lot of lateral movement without falling over because or breaking uh, breaking their ankles and things like that because of the mass they were carrying around but the aeroraptor that's like the oldest one the oldest uh fossil that's been dated and i think it was in argentina they found that one and it's like 238 million years ago so that's the oldest fossil of a dinosaur that exists i think right now um, so it's probably either one of those two. What about you? Uh, you would big you big was, into dinosaurs? Oh yeah, you're not. I'm not big into dinosaurs. Was the Drapanosaur during this time? I can't tell in my notes if it was before or after. I think Drapanosaur is after. Like the big one, the big sort of herbivore at this time is the Coloradiosaurus. I think the one they found in Colorado. It's like the first big long necked massive uh four legged or quadrupedal dinosaur but it seems like because of its hip size like it was set up that it would stand on two legs in order to get the stuff from out of the trees and things like that and it could also walk around on two legs if it needed to yeah this the drapanosaur is from the triassic between 230 to 210 million years ago um but its adaptations, uh, you know, th- I'm biased because since I wasn't as a kid into this, these are the ones presented to me in my research. Um, <laughs> you can only fall in love with these. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's I got a game of Bachelor going on here. Um, but the Japanosaur was wild because the body structure of it is so... I mean, it's it honestly looks like if you were trying to design an animal to be the most versatile (laughs) during this time, (laughs) because it has like an arched back, which then allows it to have a long neck that can articulate in all different directions. It has grasping sort of arms like a chameleon. Mm -hmm. 
and it has like a narrow lizard face, but sometimes beaks, like certain species of it have beaks. Uh, yes. It can also... Yeah, I remember seeing has, this now. At different different versions of it, they found like actually have what looked like a little chicken beak. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's got like a really meaty tail that has a hook on the end of it that it can use for grasping, and it lived in trees or burrowed in the ground. Yeah, uh, and ate bugs. So it's like the most grab bag looking dinosaur. I can imagine because it's <laughs> it's so disproportional. <laughs> and then this like CG image that they've got that I've got in my notes. I don't know if this if they're just suspecting this is how the offspring acted, but it's got like its babies crawling all over it oh, <laughs> while it's like yeah, in this yeah. tree too. It's kind of gross. <laughs> Which is but it's kind of interesting. I was I sent you that uh Kurzgesagt video yesterday. Um I don't know if you watched it, but it it is interesting to imagine that all of the fossils that we have are from, as people know, the like parts that don't decompose quickly. So you get the bones and everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, or you get some things in amber, I guess, but that's mostly, you know, bugs or whatever. And it's very true. I think this also like the you know Jurassic Park the franchise certainly does this it creates when you have just a skeleton a creepy image mm-hmm. like uh you know I've got my uh daily skelly scarathon going on <laughs> um the the creepy image of a skeleton is real it does look weird and then you try to imagine what it would look like with flesh and meat and everything so when you do that with dinosaur bones, you do get these very fierce-looking creatures. They're very angular, too, mm-hmm. you know, because they don't want to add too much to the imagination. But when you compare them to current-day lizards or you compare them to, um, I guess, you know, birds, the social behaviors and everything is really interesting to imagine because you have, uh, say, a triceratops like with this giant kind of almost hood behind its head. Mm-hmm. They don't really show it in like Jurassic Park movies that it's could be colorful. It could have been like an ornamental like mating ritual kind of thing. Yeah, they flood it with their blood and they can change it because it, it, not triceratops but other of the ceratopsians actually had the holes like holes in the in that plate that's on the top of their skull and so it's unknown if the holes in those bone plates were stretched with very thin skin over those so if you did if they did like flood it with blood like it could change the pigment color in those very thin skinned regions that would layer over those holes sort of like a drum head you know a Mm -hmm. very thin thing right there so it could be for very ornamental reasons and you have like the variations too where you have the ceratopsians and the stegosaurians where they have like the armor plating as their sort of embellishments but uh, the um fossilized evidence now of stuff going back to even this triassic period shows that some of these smaller 
um, early bipedal dinosaurs had the beginnings of all of the of uh, follicles for for feathers, what would be like very early proto feathers that would just be for insulation. You know, they can't fly with them or anything like that. But the it's all there in in some of the captured um, fossilized remains of these smaller dinosaurs, and that stuff would naturally. And most fossilization processes, unless it's a very specific way that they were like flash fossilized. And in this, in this scenario, at the late Triassic period, there is a group of fossils. Um, I think it's in France or it might be Germany, but it's uh, where these dinosaurs sort of experienced a Pompeii-like death. A uh, volcano exploded near to them, captured them in the ash, and sort of flash froze them um, in in where they were. And so for those, they have like, you can see all the indentations of the feathers and everything on their bodies. Um, and if the ones that predate, you know, like T-Rex <laughs> by 150 million years... Uh, had feathers and it's probably that the ones later also had feathers it's just those fossilized remains the that organic material that made up the feathers isn't there anymore but there's been recent evidence that shows that you can there's a certain um, pigment that is held in bird feathers that you know when they die it breaks down and you can see sort of the uh, the chemical stratification of that pigment in the feathers when you uh, look at it under a microscope. And there is evidence of those pigments still in the fossils of many dinosaurs, like the remnants of what would have been the pigmentation of their feathers. Um, so you can even see like now they know through CT scan and through chemical analysis like what the color of a lot of these dinosaurs were, at least in the reddish and blue hues, because the pigment doesn't really hold on for the uh, other hues. But so I, there's there's a whole lot of stuff that's happened in in recent paleontology to give us a better idea of what this is. And not only that, but there um, was a paper about five years ago that showed that there is a way to even extract blood and um, some organic material still from fossils. They're not finding like hemoglobin with like DNA in it, but they're finding the remnants of the blood and the rem and remnants of the organic material. You c there's no DNA to extract, so you're not going to have a Jurassic Park scenario. But where they previously used to think, Oh, there's never going to be evidence of blood in these things. Now, with modern equipment, there is evidence of their blood still. Yeah, that's. I mean, it's. I I just think going through the rest of this series, it'll be interesting to try and imagine like another sort of world of dinosaurs because it's one that obviously it was harsh, mm -hmm. like from human standards and um, can't get a latte anywhere <laughs> but the social lives of these things you know we have current extant animals that that exhibit similar you know what we would suspect 
uh, social things like certain birds and stuff. Imagine like the mating rituals you've seen of birds, how they're sort of dancing. Like, I don't think anywhere would really, you, you don't imagine dinosaurs like doing like a sort of dance <laughs> to try and right. like, get a mate. So it's, it's kind of cool to try and reimagine what all of this, uh, this world could have been like and, and trying to, you know, put a different spin on it. Um, at least that's the only thing I can grasp onto because, uh, the invisible hand of the market doesn't yet exist. So <laughs> can't draw this back to politics. Yeah. How did capitalism kill the dinosaurs? <laughs> uh, well, and, and I, I mean, there is a little bit of a capitalistic take there. Like, uh, the I was way into dinosaurs before Jurassic Park because dinosaurs like my intro into them there was a lot of dinosaur stuff going on in the mid 80s to late 80s before Jurassic Park came out there was uh, the show Denver the Last Dinosaur it was a cartoon uh, there was uh, the uh, Dinobots Transformers there was oh I remember those the um there was another show called Dinosaurs, not the not the puppet one that was on uh, TGIF, but it was like the it was a cartoon, and these dinosaurs had like these uh, uh, like futuristic mech suits, and they it was they like saved the world, you know, it, just another yeah, cartoon yeah. back in the day. Um, and there was this other cartoon back in the day called Brave Star. It was like this sheriff this Native American sheriff in outer space, and he rode like a robot horse. But, uh, like, I think his sidekick, or maybe his sidekick riding thing was a T-Rex. So that was really weird. <laughs> so there was <laughs> a like lot a of... goofy Pluto situation. Yeah, there was, there was a lot of things, you know, marketed as far as dinosaurs were concerned, even before Jurassic Park. But I think that Jurassic Park was the... Um, the capitalist awakening, I guess, but it, what it did for for me was it gave me an actual an actualization of what all my imagined visions of what dinosaurs must have been like were in my head. Because before that, like nothing could actually give you a visual representation of it. Like there were cartoons, there were puppets, there were like animatronics. All that type of stuff, but never, uh, never a fucking full on, um, like actual CGI representation that you thought was real when you were in the movie theater type of type of experience. So that's were what you... really made me excited about it. <laughs> Even if it made Steven Spielberg me. billions of dollars. <laughs> You're reminding me of uh, my favorite show as a kid, the Cows of Moo Mesa or something like that. <laughs> The cows that were sheriffs <laughs> <laughs> in the nineties were great. Um, sounds yeah, like it would have gone well with like battle toads and other stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, what What did you do then for visualizations like before these movies existed? Because I think didn't Jurassic Park come out in like ninety four? Yeah. So no is. I was in fifth grade. 
so 93, maybe it was 92. I don't remember now. Um, yeah, my visualization before was like the, uh, the like watercolor style drawings that they would put in the Encyclopedia Britannica, <laughs> you know, of this is mm, what a, okay. uh, Dilophosaurus looked like. And this is what, a the duck-billed platypus dinosaur look like and all that type of stuff. No, you know, no feathers. That back when back when I was getting into dinosaurs like there no no one even uh had really an agreed upon theory of the extinction event. Like there were yeah. lots of theories about oh they all got sick cuz there was too much fiber in their diet and they couldn't digest it all and that that's eventually what happened because there's too much fauna. Uh, all these different theories that were going around. And I remember like talking about them with, with different friends of mine, you know, kind of a Monday morning quarterbacking the extinction of the dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, they were still all cold-blooded, you know. No one thought they were right, birds. Yeah. It's a totally different time. <laughs> the thing that's wild about the triassic too is it seems fairly short-lived it is the shortest of these geologic epochs because it's bookended by two mass extinction events yeah can you imagine <laughs> what living through a mass extinction event must be like <laughs> <laughs> i mean the the current rate of extinction is a thousand times greater than it should be but Right, uh, but <laughs> but but think about it like this: we're finding a new species of dinosaur one like more than one per week. So good. I don't know. It, it's us. kind of like we're kind of like replenishing all the things we're losing with extinction by finding a new species every week when we're digging them up. I will have to ask Jake what he thinks of money spent on dinosaurs <laughs> <laughs> compared to space. Yeah. Um, but go ahead. Oh, just this, this extinction event is also one that they're not exactly sure, right? There's multiple causes that could have done it. They think there might be an impact crater, but it dates to like, like 10 million years before mm -hmm. this extinction event. And there's like a couple little mini extinction events that happened during the Triassic too, because what's happening that during the whole time of the Triassic is you have um, Pangaea starting to break up. You have the east coast of North America moving away from the west coast of Africa and Europe. And this Yeah, New Jersey is leaving Morocco. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so you have this sort of separation, and as, as it separates... It's like a huge plumes of lava, kind of like you see in Iceland now, where you can go and you can see like the edges of the plates pulling apart in Iceland, and you can like look down in the earth and see the f flame and molten rock and fire and everything bubbling out. But as that crevice opens and the and it keeps getting wider and the magma cools on either side, then it's filled with water. And that's the other crazy thing is in this period of time, where you go, you know, like 30 million years and these continents spread apart, it only takes like a few thousand years for the Atlantic Ocean to fill up. 
So when you, we're, we're talking on all like, these just massive, the- massive scales of time and it in what would be less than a snap of your finger with the scale of time we've been talking about the entire Atlantic Ocean fills up <laughs> which is nuts <laughs> that's just the power of having all of the water located on around the planet and not having any continents that separate the water to all of a sudden splitting that one giant continent apart and having just all the water from the rest of the entire planet flood into that crevice takes just a couple thousand years to fill that whole thing up which is crazy but it happened did it not happen simultaneously or it began splitting but it didn't split at the edges yeah it began splitting it didn't split at the edges until so think of it uh similar to the way that it came together like it was the middle that came together last and then it was the middle that broke apart first, kind of like a donut, and then it kept tearing apart and tearing apart, and then until it was completely two separate land masses, like along a seam. Okay. So like you're ripping so a you shirt open from the middle. We've got a bunch of drowned dinosaur fossils at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. Oh, I'm sure. If we go to the bottom of, if we could uh, somehow go to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean, there's probably a lot of. Uh, cool fossils way more fossils than we could ever find in argentina or germany or montana or arizona hmm. yeah it's weird too looking this up because i was trying to see like can't remember this was at the beginning of the week so whole three days ago can't remember <laughs> what i was doing then uh but i was trying to look up like the japanese name for dinosaurs because i thought that they might be different and uh, but apparently like in Japan, which I don't know why, but there's like a good number of dinosaurs that have been discovered that they're like, yeah, this one ruled like Japan, Yeah, <laughs> which thinking it's such a tiny land mass, uh, very odd. Well, it was the, it was the coast of the other side. Like California was the West coast of Pangea and Japan was the East coast of Pangea. You know, and so okay, like so, they're coming back around on the planet to meet each other on the other side of the planet now, like California and Japan are moving towards each other, you know, while mm-hmm. Europe and America and New Jersey are moving apart from each other. <clears throat> so I guess that would make sense. Like you'd have completely different dinosaurs that you would find in Japan than you would find in California because they were actually on opposite sides of a landmass. It's not like they used to be seamed up against each other and then they got pulled apart. Right. Whereas we find a lot of the similar dinosaurs in North America as we do in Europe and Northern Africa because that was a close there was a close relationship there to how the land masses were together at that time. So did the discovery of these fossils also aid in the development of I guess plate tectonics? I can't remember. That was an Quite a while ago. Yeah, that uh, when we did the plate tectonics episode, that was one of the things was how do you get a species that is we thought would be like isolated on Australia? How do you get that same thing in uh, India? Like they were finding similar fossils of different things. How did that happen? Because it's not like this thing swam across the ocean to get to Australia. 
So at some point there had to be a relationship there. Um, similar with uh, South America and Africa, there's there were a lot of similar fossils, and we're not talking about like dinosaurs. We're talking about like shells and uh, other other life that much smaller type of fossils that are maintained, but that were similar from like the west coast of Africa and the east coast of South America, and that sort of is what put together the idea. First, the idea, of course, continental drift. And then only after continental drift was finally accepted as a, this is a plausible scenario, then do you come up with plate tectonics. Oh, there's actually seams that are deep under the ocean and deep underground that are moving the continents. The continents are just the pieces of dry land on the surface we can see. It's actually all these seams that are deep, deeply seated under the Earth's crust that are moving it all around. So if you think about it... What a good recap. If have you, a good memory. If you think about Pangea, Pangea was basically like you put mud all over the surface of one side of a baseball, and then if you were able to like rip that baseball open at the seams and all of a sudden all the mud started cracking on the baseball, that's the breakup of Pangea. That's the end of the Triassic period. Yeah, the I mean, it's just a uh... Very interesting because the world starts to really change, like the environment and ecosystem and everything. Well, you go through so. you go through a heat up, and then there's a cold snap, like ice everywhere, yeah. and these creatures have to survive, which was a big issue when they originally thought, "Oh, dinosaurs must be cold blooded; they're just lizards." How do they survive a uh, ice age that lasts like ten thousand years? That is the sort <laughs> yeah. of rebound result of having a global warming catastrophe in the middle of the Triassic. They have that's when you start to figure out, oh, the metabolisms are actually a lot higher. They're not cold blooded. They have these multi-chamber hearts, which are essentially the exact same heart that we have that is able to oxygenate the blood and pump it a lot. They also have they're not like lizards. Um, or other reptiles that necessarily have like scales on their skin to hold the moisture in, their skin at, holds the moisture holds moisture in better than a traditional reptilian skin would. So when they excrete, um, they don't lose nearly as much moisture from the inside of their body. So if it's a dry period, whether it's cold or hot outside, during a dry period, they are much more likely to survive an elongated dry period because they can retain their interior moisture for much longer than lizards, salamanders, and other reptiles. Huh. Well, happy to jump into it more. Thank you for introducing me to dinosaurs. Yeah, this this is just the this is just the little uh, the little primer, and then next week will will be when we get into uh, what everyone really thinks about dinosaurs, whenever they think yeah, about dinosaurs. But I kind of like this area of dinosaurs too because most of them are small, except for a couple herbivores. That the way that they were able to not be eaten by the tiny little carnivores was that this is when they just get huge. Like, this is the first idea where, oh, we've got our hips up underneath us now, so we can handle a whole lot of weight. So now we're going to grow to be three tons. <laughs> and that's the way that we're going to not get eaten by all these tiny little dinosaurs that eat meat. Um, yeah. And then two, at the, at the end of the Permian, you have a lot of pterosaurs, which are not dinosaurs. They're flying reptiles. 
Um, and some that are huge, like wingspans of, you know, five, some 10 meters, like big, big flying pterosaurs. Um, the large ones go extinct in the, in the, in the Permian, uh, Triassic extinction, but there's a lot of tiny ones that don't, and they develop a new niche the same way the little Coelophysis develop a new niche, um, these tiny little winged dinosaurs that have an extra long forefinger index finger, so they have wings like a bat, um, they fly, but now that the environment has changed to a low oxygen environment and all of these dragonflies that used to dominate the air are all small now, there's nothing that's eating the dragonflies except for these little bitty winged um, pterosaurs. And so they're flying around and having a heyday like... It's a fucking buffet lunch for the for the next twenty million years. We no one else is going to eat all these dragonflies. Who's it's us? We're we we get to eat all the dragonflies now. So you have this uh, this big expansion of these tiny flying uh, pterosaurs that are all over the place, and they're feeding off of insects. Yeah, it's there's such a weird array of convergent evolution. <laughs> yeah that's my takeaway and again like the pterosaurs wing again an evolutionary thing where they developed an index uh, an extension of their index finger so that they could stretch a flap of skin from the side of their body out to the tip of their index finger but only after that adaptation happens over millions of years and that flap of skin grows longer and that index finger grows longer does it eventually become a thing that you can use to fly you don't just yeah get born with it overnight because evolution decided that you were supposed to fly so even the wing of the pterosaur is not a thing that evolved to fly it was evolved for other adaptability reasons to that specific environment that was in and then only after it developed this this appendage did it start to utilize it in a new way in its environment yeah it's not like uh testing it every 10 years yes yeah, like ah <laughs> need see. to grow that a little bit longer need need to have sex with the with the males that have a little bit longer finger we still can't get off the ground <laughs> got got to shun all those tiny oh. winged males we're never going to fly if we don't get them out of our brood <laughs> well that's about all i got yep good job eric we'll talk jurassic next time i'm excited bye